have a Bible, to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have one, you're welcome to borrow. Oh, I see there's none there. Well, you can't borrow there. Gone. Um, there might be one more in the box if you need one, but uh, we'll rustle some more up. Uh, glad those are going. Uh, if you need those any week, we try to make those available to you. But Hebrews chapter 9 is, is where we are. Last week, we, we finally returned to our study of Hebrews and to the uh, overarching theme of really the whole book, which is access to God. Remember, we kind of talked about that quite a bit last week, and the author's primary argument, really the heart of, of his argument there and the heart of the letter is Jesus' priesthood. We've been talking about his priesthood for quite a while, and we're not going to be done with it anytime uh, soon, that his, his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And this point has to be proven if um, these Jews are to believe that now there's access to God. There wasn't before, but now there there is. And why that's important is this, and we talked about this last week as well. The priesthood is one of those elements that makes up Old Testament worship. It's really important to understand that in tracking the argument in, uh, in Hebrews. That's just one of them. The priesthood's one, the covenant is the second, and the sacrifices are the third. And in the Old Testament economy, those, those three things really constituted all of the worship elements um, but none of those things gave you access to God. None of them truly brought people to God. None of them truly uh, brought full and complete forgiveness. Uh, but now we do have access to God. It's been made available, praise the Lord, uh, through Jesus Christ. And so the first point the author was trying to prove back in chapter 7 is that Jesus is a better priest. He looked at uh, Psalm 110 for his Old Testament uh, support to that argument. And really today, we're finding ourselves at the end of his second argument, which is that Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. So he's been on a theme of of covenant for a while. And in fact, if you want to look back at chapter 8, verse 6, this is where he brought that up. But he says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises and we looked in depth at those better promises described uh, from, and really from the quote of Jeremiah 31. And so uh, since it has better promises, then it must be a better uh, covenant. But the author didn't uh, want to stop there. He has to prove Jesus's involvement here. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. How does that, how does that come about? And really this brings us right up to where we are in, in verse 15. We left off at verse 14 of chapter 9. And I just want to draw your attention to verse 15. Just look at it really briefly here. He said, For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, that word mediator, we should look at it because he's brought it up a few times. Uh, Mesites is a go-between. He's an arbitrator. Um, that is an important role. Uh, the, certainly the Old Testament priest was uh, the same, a go-between. The priest went uh, to, the, um, to the Lord or to God on behalf of the people. That was the only, he was the only one that sort of mediated that relationship. But notice what it says. That It says, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Well, what, what reason? It refers back to what he's just showed us earlier in chapter 9. If you were here last week, and even uh, going back a few months ago, he was comparing the services of the earthly tabernacle. That, if you think back to that old tabernacle built in the wilderness, he was comparing 
all that took place in the, that tabernacle under the old covenant with, with the services of the new tabernacle, or you could say uh, the, the heavens that was established by Jesus. That earthly tabernacle, all the service of the priests in there, uh, which included tending the, the lampstand and, and making bread for the table of the showbread and putting incense on the altar of incense, and even that high priestly role on that day of atonement to take blood into the Holy of Holies, all of that demonstrated that there was limited access to God, limited access to God, and that is key. In fact, look back at chapter 9, verse 8. We're just reviewing quickly here. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. There really was an access to God, at least not while that tabernacle was standing. It also demonstrated that there was limited cleansing from sin. You look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So there was not a full cleansing from sin. It certainly didn't do anything for the conscience. But notice verse 11. Concerned, I'm sorry, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So, so Jesus, he functions as a high priest, but he functions as a high priest differently. He brings good things. There are good things coming. And what does he bring? Well, he brought, we looked at, a sacrifice of his own blood, which he offered, we're told, once for all. You look at verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then verses 13 and 14 really closed out last week. He said, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That brings us right up to verse 15 where we are today. And now look at that again. You're going to see how he... He's wrapping up this point in verse 15, but also using this, this verse to transition to address that third element of worship, which is sacrifices. He's talked about the priesthood. He's talked about the covenant. And now he's got to address the sacrifices. And he starts to weave it through this verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. How? By means of death. You see it there? This fact he's going to explore really in the rest of this chapter. But it's by means of death, but for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. We're going to certainly see the death part, but I want you to understand this. That's a, a strange. What, what is the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant? What does that mean? It means this. Christ's sacrifice was retroactive. That's what it's talking about. That, that, you've heard the question, how were Old Testament sa saints uh, saved? They are saved the same way that you and I are saved, by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But Christ hadn't come yet. So how could they be saved by that? Well, those who believed in God and by faith offered those sacrifices that in obedience that he requested that they do under that old covenant, they were in effect doing so under a guarantee, under a promise that a sacrifice would come that would accomplish the full and complete forgiveness that they need and would give them 
grant them full and complete access to him as well. So you could say it this way, that people were uh, credited with what Jesus would do. That's the retroactive power of the Lord. And this certainly is what, what Paul talks about in Romans 3, verses 24 to 25. Take a look at it. He says that being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Why? Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. See, God was forbearing. He was patient. He had passed over those sins that were committed under the old covenant. So Jesus' uh, retroactive redeeming work went all the way back, if you can think about this, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The sins committed in the garden covered by the blood of Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, listen to um, R. Kent Hughes. He says it this way, their sacrifices were not a means of salvation in the Old Covenant, but they were evidence of believing faithful hearts. To these, Christ's blood extended its retroactive power. So hopefully that makes sense. But it, really, it goes even deeper than that because we're really looking at this from man's perspective. But when you look at this from God's pers perspective, the sacrifice of Christ had already been made. That's already been done. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. He's actually mentioned this in chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. <laughs> the works, what works? The work of Christ. The finished work of Christ was finished what, really from the foundation of the world. Peter mentions this as well in 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. And certainly Revelation tells us that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. From God's perspective, it already happened. He exists outside of time. But from man's perspective, they were looking forward to that salvation. Now, what about today? New Testament believers. Well, Christ's work is, is proactive. We receive forgiveness today for sins committed in the past, in the present, and in the future. So forgiveness of, of the sins of man is, is for all eternity, and that has been accomplished. And Jesus' purpose in this, in redemption, notice what it says, was to give them the eternal inheritance that was promised. That's salvation. Full forgiveness of sin, full access to God, and eternal life. Now, keep, keep this in mind before we go forward into the, the main text today. He is talking to Jews who were expecting a victorious, conquering Messiah. And the question that is raging in their minds is, is why do we have a dead Messiah? Why did the Messiah have to die? So the author is using these introductory truths to explore now the subject of the Messiah's death, to get on that sacrifice subject. You know, Paul even said it, that we preach Christ crucified, but to the Jews, it's a what? Stumbling block. So we've got to get past the stumbling block. So if Jesus was indeed the mediator of a better covenant, as you say, well, then why was his death necessary to receive the promise of the eternal inheritance? Why was his death necessary to have our sins forgiven? Why did that have to happen? 
These are really the first questions that he's going to seek to answer. But really all of this is to show us that Jesus is the better sacrifice. So that's our subject today, the better sacrifice. Well, part one, really, because we'll have a lot of uh, that being our subject. So let's look at our passage today. Uh, We just kind of briefly went through 15, but we're reading from 16 to 28. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkling, uh, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Let me pray. God, we recognize we are in a marvelous section of Scripture today, full of very deep and rich truths. And so we recognize our need for your spirit to be with us, to illuminate truth, to guide us into truth. Lord, we want to understand these these wonderful things, Lord, that you have preserved through us. In your holy word, we pray that you would just bless this time that we have together. May your truths penetrate our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just to kind of start off with, there's a a repeating word I want to make sure we notice here. This word is necessity. You saw it there in verse 16 that there was the the necessity for death. And then in verse 23, the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified. Uh, that word, word is engeke, and it is a necessity by custom or by law or even by duty. But it is, I, this idea is really important. It's a key to understanding the passage because they're wondering why, 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 why did the mediator have to die? Well, it was necessary, you see. It was a necessity. That's a key understanding of this. And really, my first point, point one, is the necessity of the sacrifice the necessity of the sacrifice, beginning in verse 16. For when there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, that's an interesting little uh, uh, verse here. Uh, and really, it brings a, a first sub point, if I can say it that way. We've got the necessity of the sacrifice, but there's a sub point. He's going to use these things to illustrate this and make it clearer to us. Thank God for these wonderful illustrations. They help dense people like me. And this is his point. Without death, there is no inheritance. 
without death, there is no inheritance. Now, go back to that question, why did that Messiah have to die? All right, that helps us here. Well, without a death, you don't get an inheritance. Now, notice this first word, testament. You see that right away in verse 16, where there's a testament. Now, that word is a key word I need to show you as well. Diatheke. It's a compact, it's a covenant, and it's a testament. That is the same Greek word that was translated in verse 15 as covenant. You just saw it two times as covenant there. It was the new covenant, and it was used as first covenant. But now we come to verse um, 16 and verse 17, and here it's rendered as testament. And so why the two different renderings for the same Greek word? Why do we have covenant in verse 15, and then we come to 16 and 17, and we have testament? Well, here's the real simple answer to it. In verse 15, it's used religiously. It religiously, you've got, you've got the idea of redemption, sin, eternal inheritance. All these things are tied up in that. But in verses 16 to 17, he's using it in a legal sense so that we would understand it. Look at verses 16 to 17. It's just a simple illustration, and hopefully you'll see this. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since there's no power at all while a testator lives. So this illustration should be simple. It should be obvious. It speaks of a will. You and I use the word will. But what's the really official word for that often? Your last will and testament. Exactly. It's the same thing. Now, let me ask you, when does that will come into your effect, into effect? When do your children actually or your grandchildren receive the things that you have willed them to have? When you die. Don't get any ideas, kids. All right. I'm just. It's when you die. That, what's his point here then? Well, go back and read the end of verse 15. Very end of verse 15, he speaks about those who are called, who will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he's back on this subject of inheritance. He just said that the, Jesus has become the mediator. He's been, been the mediator of this new covenant, but it's by means of death. He has died. Death is necessary if you want to receive an inheritance. So the promise of the eternal inheritance was only that, a promise. That's all, that's all it is. It's a promise. My parents have showed all her boys. There's four brothers. We, we have a will. We show you where we keep it in those little folders, safely locked away in nothing, sitting on top of our refrigerator. <laughs> like, like, like that's a perfect place. Great. But they, they want us to know that's where our will is, our last will and testament. You receive this when we die, which is basically we won't inherit any debt. That'll be about it. <laughs> but, um, but you don't get anything you die. But in the meantime, it's just a what? It's just a promise. That's all it is. But when Christ died, the will came into effect. This is his argument. Very simple. In fact, Paul alluded to it in 2 Corinthians verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. We're talking about the king of kings and lord of lords who became very poor by becoming a human, becoming a man, humbling himself even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Why do you do that? So that you and I can become rich. We will inherit great and wonderful things. And you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Hopefully people watching from home know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about earthly riches. We're talking about the spiritual riches in the heavenlies. We're talking about our eternal inheritance. 
So his simple point is that the maker of the will had to die in order for his promise of eternal life to be granted. So why did this mediator have to die? Well, if he didn't, you don't get anything. Death has to happen. And you and I receive something as a down payment. Did you know that? You actually have a small, you have a small deposit in each of you given to you as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, I heard someone say it. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The down payment is the guarantee that more is to come. You have an eternal inheritance, folks. And if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have the guarantee as well. You've got that first down payment. That first payment has been made. In fact, listen to John F. Walvert. I love the way he said it. He says, in essence, the deposit of the Holy Spirit is a little bit of heaven in believers. Yep, in your life. And it's a guarantee of more yet to come. You have a little bit of heaven in you now, and you're going to get a whole lot of heaven later. I love that. So without, without death, there's no inheritance. That's his first sub-point, okay? The death of Christ was necessary to secure our inheritance. Second sub-point, without blood, there's no forgiveness. So you need death, first of all, so that the inheritance can happen. But why the blood? The blood, which symbolized death, there's no forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So it goes back to that first covenant. And by the way, covenant is not even actually in here in the Greek, but it's implied. So that's why a lot of your Bibles have the word covenant, but maybe it's italicized because that's what he's talking about. He's going back to that first covenant. He says, if we go back and we look at that first covenant, not even that covenant was dedicated without blood. You have not even and without. So it's a double negative. What he's saying is that it was dedicated with blood. That's his point. Look at verse 19. We'll actually read the whole section and we'll unpack it. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So there you have uh, his Old Testament proof. Remember, the author of Hebrews, talking to Jews, always wants to go back to the Old Testament to pull something out to prove his point. And where does he go? He goes back to Exodus 24, and it's, it's quoted there in verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you. But I want you to see Exodus 24, because there's a lot there. I want you to get the full picture of what has been happening. So if you can turn in your Bibles, go all the way back, nearly to the very front, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. This is where he's drawing their minds to. They would have known it very well, being Jews. They would have understood what that quote and the context of it meant, but we may not. So I want to make sure we see it, we understand it. Exodus chapter 24. I'm just going to read from verse 1 down through verse 8 so you can kind of see the whole thing here. And God, this is speaking of God at first. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now notice that, access to God. They don't have it. They have to worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Why Moses alone? He is the mediator there. He's the go-between between God and the people. 
So Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And then God kind of chuckled in heaven. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the floor of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So here you have the context there. Moses is talking to God, and God has said, here are my laws. Here's my judgments. In fact, the Ten Commandments have just been given in chapter 20. He has all these things, and the people are saying, yeah, we're going to do all that. And so he takes blood, and he just splatters it on everything. I mean, it's just crazy. You look, it was everywhere. It was in the basins, on the altar, on the book, on the people. Aren't you glad? First of all, aren't you glad we don't do that today? Everyone come in. we got to purify this place, first of all. We're going to send the ushers around with little cups of blood, and we're going to sprinkle it on you. I mean, it would be the horrible. But, folks, that was the reality there. Blood was everywhere. And we saw this last week when we looked at the tabernacle and the, the role of the high priest on the Day of Atonement and the sacrificing of the animals and the blood he had taken to the holy place and sprinkled it on the mercy seat of the ark and sprinkled it on the brazen altar. Literally everything dripped with blood it was all over the place. Going back to our passage, look at verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness. Now, notice, first of all, he says almost all things. Did you notice that little word? Not all things, but almost all things. He says that because there were actually exceptions. In God's wonderful mercy, if you, he, he, he knew that people were poor. If you were too broke to even, to even buy the little pigeon or the turtle dove to make a blood sacrifice, you were allowed to take a tenth of an ephah of flour, and that flour was seen as a sin offering. If, you, if that's all you could afford, that was it. And so they knew the law, and this author knew the law, and he knew the Jews knew the law, so he said that's why almost all things are purified with blood. He knew that there were exceptions. But why was that allowed? Why was even flour allowed? Flour's not blood. Very important question, isn't it? I touched on this last week. Flour was accepted as a sin, uh, sin offering because it symbolized the blood. Blood was accepted as a sin offering because it symbolized the life, right? The life was spilled. Death had taken place. It wasn't the blood itself. It was, if it was, if it was actually blood, think about how many animals they could have saved because they could have just bled some animals, taken the blood and taken it in. And they could, couldn't they? That's not what God wanted. Kill the animal, sprinkle the blood, proves the animal has been killed, proves the life has been taken. It was the blood. The principle comes from Leviticus 17.11. We looked at this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And if I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So if you started at the end 
and looked at that, the blood is what makes atonement for the soul, you'd be a little lost. But thankfully, he tells us at the beginning, why does blood make atonement for your soul? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. It represents life to God. And you may still look at all this blood in the Old Testament and wonder, why? Why was there always so much blood, though? How, how could people even stand that? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The people had to understand that sin had terrible, terrible consequences. It's serious. There was a movie that every single one of us young people back in the States, you have to watch when you're taking driver's ed. I don't know if you've heard it here. I, actually, I don't think you have it. It's called Red Asphalt. And it's legendary. Everyone knows about it, and it's the last thing you want to watch. But the government knows and understands that if young people getting behind the wheel of a vehicle, which is capable of taking lives, were to watch real police videos of carnage on the road from those that are killed, they might sober up a bit in their driving. And I'm going to tell you, it is a rough watch. It's a whole hour-long video called Red Asphalt. Literally, I remember blood is running in the gutters in some of these videos. And they show it to young people so they realize you are, you are getting behind a very powerful vehicle that can take a life. And it's serious. They want to, to sober people up. The same idea is here. The seriousness of sin. And Ezekiel 18.20, God says this to this prophet, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And the point is this, that you are responsible for your sin. Not your parents. It's not your environment. It's not your upbringing. It's not whatever's happened in your past or what's ever happening in your life right now. There are certainly tragic things and difficult things that people have gone through, no doubt. But at the end of the day, we have choices. And God holds you and you alone accountable for your sin. The problem is we just don't think that we're that sinful. We judge our goodness by other people's badness. But the Bible says that there is no one righteous, no, not even one. And all sin is horrendous offense to God. R. Kent Hughes said this about the Old Covenant, that it literally sailed on a sea of blood. And certainly you see that when you read. There's just blood everywhere. The bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. You think about even the bloody river in the Kidron Valley below the temple in the New Testament. All those sacrifices taking place in the temple, the blood was run down into the Kidron Valley, and that's why that blood river ran down there. It was a constant, constant reminder, a graphic picture of the seriousness of sin. But it also is to demonstrate the costliness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, he says, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. The penalty of sin is not just blood. It requires a life. The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. It's very clear. And I remember when I was first getting into reading God's word and first starting to digest these truths, I came across Romans 5, 6 to 8, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I want you to see it today for what it says. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, 
Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he, he did that. Knowing that even when he died, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't give him two thoughts. But at one point in my life, he took hold of my heart and I gave my life to him. And I'm so very grateful for that. And my question for you is, do you look at that cost that was paid for salvation? Do you ever look at it in awe? I mean, do you ever just stop and go, wow, God, you did that for me. That's incredible. Are you overwhelmed by what it costs to receive forgiveness from sins? Or are you too, too comfortable with grace that sin is no longer a big deal? Romans chapter 6, Paul writes this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He knew people would take that argument. Well, if it's all about God's grace, what does sin matter? I might as well just, you know, make more sin because God will just give more grace. And he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's like, why would you want any part of that? For you to be forgiven and granted the eternal inheritance, it was necessary that a sacrifice be made. It was either you or Christ. And Christ became the necessary sacrifice, and a sacrifice was a better sacrifice. That's the first point. And this really leads us into focusing on the greatness of the sacrifice. The greatness of the sacrifice, beginning here in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, the entire Old Testament economy, we've talked about this a lot, all of it were, was were merely copy of, uh, copies of heavenly things or shadows sometimes it's called. Shadows are, uh, you know, just, just pictures of the heavenly things. And we looked at this word copies before. This is not the first time the author of Hebrews uses it. He used it back in chapter 8, verse 5. If you just want to peek there real quick. Chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make it all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So we serve the copy of the heavenly things. That word, a copy, is hupadigma, and it means a representation or a figure or um, an example the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priestly garments, all the detail into all those things, the pattern, all of those things were merely copies. They were merely types. So it makes sense then that mere copies of heavenly things, that those needed to be purified with the blood of animals. They were just copies. But when the reality came, the actual heavenly things, the, the substance, the reality, those must require a greater sacrifice. Certainly you couldn't do anything with the blood of animals there. They have to be better than the Old Testament sacrifices of the animals. The Old Covenant was a copy. It's a picture, then, of the shed blood of Jesus that would come in the New Covenant. So how is it a better sacrifice? And really, he's going to expound upon this on into chapter 10. But he really introduces it here. First, he entered the presence of God. Remember that high priest one day a year went into something that just sort of represented the presence of God. Jesus literally entered the presence of God, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that's what those other priests did, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. Remember how we started this whole discussion? That man lives in a box of time and space. You can't get outside of it. I don't care what religion tells you. Oh, you do this. You can get to God. You do this. You can get to God. You can't get there. We have no access to the supernatural at all. So this is revolutionary to say, but Jesus went there. He went to the presence of God, and he's able to take us all with him. So this is super important. Now, here he says copies again in verse 24, but it's a different word in the Greek, uh, but it really carries the same idea. It means counterpart, antitopon. But what he's saying here is this holy place made with hands, the earthly one, that was a counterpart of the true. The true is described as heaven itself, and Jesus went there, and when he went there, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down because his work was finished. And we touched on this before. What is he doing now? What's he doing sitting there, drinking a Coke? I mean, what's he? He is working still, isn't he? He's interceding for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. How does that work? What does intercession for us really mean? Well, Christ died for our sins. You're forgiven for your sins, past, present, and future. But do you still sin? You do. Does, do I still sin? Not a, no, yeah, of course I do. Yeah. We all sin. But because Christ died for us and we're united with him, then when we sin, we have an advocate, one who intercedes for us, and that's Jesus. In 1 John 2, 1 is what he, he says the same thing. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Why do we have these encouragements so we don't sin? But he recognizes human nature. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Praise God for that. So he intercedes for us. When you and I mess up, he's right there saying, I paid the penalty for that one. Prices have been paid. I've got them. He's your advocate. So he's in the presence of the Father. He also, and, and mind you, no priest did that. No priest did that. You can go to talk to a priest today. They'll take you behind a little curtain, and then and you can confess uh, sins to them. And you might leave for a few minutes with a, a free conscience. You'll be back the next week with a guilty conscience once again. But your sins have been completely forgiven, and now you have one who doesn't, doesn't just, just ignore you and say, oh, you know, come just tell me about your problems. He goes to God. He intercedes for you. So second point, he puts away sin forever. He put it away forever. It's gone. It's completely dealt with never to be dealt with again. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he has put away sin by sacrificing himself, his own flesh and blood. That high priest entered the most holy place. He did it every year. He offered sacrifices. Jesus, Jesus did it once, one time. And if it were not sufficient, then he would have had to suffer year after year after year since the foundation of the world or the beginning of humanity. Notice it says the, the uh, end of the ages. He would have to done it for the end of the ages. I, I, I think that reminds us that we're in the last days because the sacrifice of himself ushered in the end of the ages because sin has finally and completely been dealt with. This passage, I just want to touch on this, is a key passage in refuting a heretical doctrine 
And the doctrine is this. It's the doctrine of the perpetual offering of Christ or the, the continual offering of Christ. This doctrine reasons that since Christ's priesthood is a perpetual priesthood, since he's still acting as priest, and he is, Scripture does say that, well, then that sacrifice, that's an essential element of the priesthood. And so then that sacrificial offering of Christ must also then be perpetual. It also must be continual. The Roman Catholic Church made that an official doctrine at the Council of Trent. And they believe that, and here's a quote, the Holy Mass, so that is their service, okay? Their Holy Mass is a true and proper sacrifice. It is physical and propitiatory, removing sins and conferring the grace of repentance. Propitiated by the offering of this sacrifice, God, by granting the grace of the gift and the gift of penance, remits trespasses and sins, however grievous they may be. That's by Ludwig Ott. At that holy mass, which they would look as a sacrificial service, they take the Holy Communion. And they believe that to be the actual body and blood of Christ. And that's why Jesus is always on the cross. You always see him on the crucifix or on the murals. He's still on the cross. Because it is in their belief that the suffering of Christ must be perpetual because the sacrifices of the priests were perpetual because Jesus is a priest. But this verse says exactly the opposite of that. That Jesus, if it weren't sufficient, then yeah, he would have had to die since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, we're in the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if you couldn't get the point from that, he wants to nail it in with this verse, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. It's clear, men have one life to live. That's obvious. So just as men have one life to live, they can only die once, so too Jesus, coming as a man, had only one life to give. He only died once. Death is once for all, and so Jesus' death cannot be repeated very simple. And it's true. Men are appointed to, to live, to die, and after that face judgment. The truth of the matter is, is that believers whose faith has been placed in the sacrifice of Christ will not face that judgment. This doesn't apply to Jesus either. Jesus will never face that judgment because why? He took the judgment of God upon himself on the cross. Notice that he says he bore the sins of many. In fact, we sang this in the first song, Jesus Messiah. It's that substitutionary atonement. The sins of the world and you and I were placed upon him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amazing. Our sin placed upon Christ. God's wrath poured out upon Christ for our sins. And the righteousness that Christ had placed upon us, imputed to our account. Amazing truth. One final thing, and that is this, that he, he procured full salvation. That's what his death accomplished. That second half of verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation this final verse won't carry the same meaning if you don't think back to that 
context of the Day of Atonement, that high priest went into that holy place with no other priest there, remember, only him. And all of Israel was encamped around, and they all waited with bated breath to see if that priest would emerge alive and successful. And as they watched and waited, he went into the most holy place. He offered the sacrifice of the goat on behalf of the people. And then when he emerged, there was a collective sigh of relief. Like, oh, he came. They were eagerly awaiting that that priest would exit. Why? Why was that so important for them to see him come out? Because only once they saw him come out would the confirmation that their sacrifice was accepted be made. He accepted the sacrifice. The day of atonement. God has cleansed our sins. We're good for another year. That was the idea. And it is so true of us, the true believer. We eagerly wait to see Jesus. We eagerly wait for him. It's the job of the church is to be eagerly waiting for him. Think back to 1 Corinthians. Paul was writing to this messy church that was messing everything up. And sure, he addresses all the situations, but right at the beginning of the letter, he says this, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why am I writing to this, this to you? I want to make sure that, that you understand you're here to eagerly wait for him. In the meantime, I hope you use your gifts the right way. Let's clear up some of these issues you have. But you're here to wait for the Lord's return. To those who wait for him, it says he will appear apart from sin, meaning not in reference to sin. He won't come this time in reference to sin. He came the first time in reference to sin because he came to be a sacrifice for sin. Notice the word that's a, a, appear and appearing in this passage, and it helps, helps you understand it. In verse 24, he says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. But in verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But then he will appear a second time. Here we go. Apart from sin and for salvation. So his first appearing was to bear the sins of many. His second appearing will be apart from sin and for salvation. He's coming to those who, according to Titus 2, are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why are we eagerly waiting for him? Because he brings with him the full reality of our salvation. You've got the deposit. You get the full reality when he comes. Does that mean he won't appear to those who don't eagerly wait for him? No, they're going to see him. To those who eagerly wait for him, he brings salvation. To those who don't, he brings judgment. In John 5, 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in, in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. My question as I'm closing here is, are you eagerly waiting for him? It's easy to say the yes, isn't it? <laughs> because we don't, we don't find ourselves constantly thinking on him. It's often that we're prevented from doing so. And I woke up this morning, wanted to just leave us with some things to think about in regards to that. What does prevent us? Why is it so hard? If we're to be here and to be thinking about Jesus is returning, he's bringing my, what keeps us from doing that just constantly, 24-7? I wanted to just close by taking you to 2 Corinthians real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul addresses this here. We're going to close by this and, and a, a few verses I'm going to read to you. 2 Corinthians 6. 
beginning of verse 11. He says, oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. So they have affections that are placed elsewhere. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 there when he says, come out from among them, and he applies it to the church. And I think one of the biggest obstacles we face, if, if, if I'm honest, is just the world, the world system. And I didn't put any of these verses up just for the sake of time, but I, if you just sit still for a minute, I'm just going to read to you a bevy of verses that speak about this because the, the scriptures are just filled with the warnings about not being too entangled with the world. Coming from Paul, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Galatians 1, 4, who has given himself for us that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Ephesians chapter 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And Paul even writes about a personal um, fellow, Demas, in 2 Timothy 4.10, has forsaken me, having loved this present world. James speaks about it as well. He speaks about pure and undefiled religion before God, being that to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, it's passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 1 John 4, 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Even Jesus himself said in that parable about the seed among the the thorns, that's, it, he's he who hears the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of the riches, choke the word. He becomes unfruitful. 
In John 8, 23, he says, you are from beneath, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. In John 14, 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he warns this in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would know its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus speaks about the world. James does. John does. Paul does. It's so important for us to withdraw from the world in terms of the, the, the fatuation with it, being so enamored with it. But Christ just wants our hearts. He wants us to be enamored with him, to be eagerly waiting for him. A great warning came out from J.C. Ryle's book, Practical Religion, and he says this, when I speak of the world, I mean the people who think only or chiefly of this world's things and neglect the world to come. The people who are always thinking about more of earth than of heaven, more of time than of eternity, more of the body than of the soul, and more of pleasing man than of pleasing God. I want to be among the number <laughs> that's eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord. And when he comes, finds me eagerly waiting for him. Can we be a church that is eagerly waiting for him? When I say withdraw from the world, you know what I mean too. We're not to you know, go live in a cave somewhere. We're not to disconnect from any unbelievers in our lives. We're salt and we're light and we're to be a sweet fragrance of, of Christ in their lives. But the things that will draw us away from him, draw us away from our love for Christ's return. Be those who eagerly wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you get that eternal inheritance. Amen. We pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this wonderful passage to us, Lord, so wonderfully written by this author to remind us of the need for death, that, that Jesus came as the mediator of a much better covenant built on better promises, but he had to die so that we might receive the eternal inheritance. He had to spill his blood so that our sins could be forgiven, just like the old covenant, just, just as that was ratified with blood, so, so too was this ratified with blood. But once for all, the sins put away far from us, as far as the east is from the west. We have nothing to fear of a judgment. We have nothing to fear from death. Death certainly just comes to all men, but after that, we will not face the judgment because Christ took the judgment of the Father upon himself. Oh, Lord, what wonderful, rich truths. I pray that these things would just speak to your people's hearts, that they would be encouraged and edified, built up, and that this would be a church known for those who love Christ and cannot wait to see him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, and we will sing.